0: The No Meekly Show Yeah, uh-huh Clash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed. Deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism. Religion in this melted body. Living time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue. Talking heads left his best. The saga continues. continues. The No Meeky Show.
1: Hello, welcome to The Nomiki Show. I am Nomiki Konst, and today I want to know what is the Biden doctrine? What is Joe Biden's approach to the world? Does he even have an approach? Or is his approach just to like slowly and conservatively react to crisis after crisis? You know, the crises that he's inherited, the crises that have exacerbated in the last few months since the Trump administration ended. This is a big question as the Biden administration fumbles its way through the two biggest foreign policy challenges in the world right now the pandemic that will not end, and the new Israeli government incited attacks, the new Israeli government incited attacks against Palestinians. It's been a few years. And it is eight days so far of extraordinary escalations with dozens of lives lost across the board. But let's be clear, this isn't just about politics. Lives are being lost every moment in both the pandemic and with the Israeli attacks. The United States is singularly positioning, positioned to lead the way out of both of these horrors, singularly positioned to save lives and to put the world on a better path. We have the power, the wealth, and the standing with key players to make a crucial difference, right now. So where is Biden's courage in these moments? Can you see it? Because I can't, instead he's waffling. You can feel him trying to navigate, to please constituencies, to please donors, corporate interests and foreign interests. To, To a world that desperately needs vaccines, he sends a handful of doses. Doses that we have a vast surplus, but seem nervous to share. To an Israel that can't afford to lose American support, he makes a limp call for a fire while sending Israel more military aid, as if the billions we send every year haven't been enough. They're the largest recipient of military aid from the U.S. Congratulations. As you file your taxes this week, know that you have helped bomb a school of Palestinian children and two offices, uh, headquarters for the Associated Press and Al Jazeera News question I am asking right now isn't about the pandemic or about justice and peace in the Middle East. We need to talk about both, and, and we have to, right? But my question today is, where the hell is Joe Biden? He was elected on a promise to lead courageously in a moment of compounding crises exacerbated and created by Donald Trump. He ran to fix this. Yet, it's a lot more... It's it. it, it Okay, it's a lot at once. I get it. But this is a man who's been preparing for this supposedly his entire life. He ran on a promise to bring America back into the community of nations, on a promise to replace Trump's neo-isolationism and America first crap with an America that respects other countries and works with them to solve global problems. Instead, he just seems to lurch from crises to crisis. Where is Joe Biden's courage in these moments? My God, you were in the Senate, President Biden, for since you were 30 years old. You'd think, you'd think that you'd have an understanding of how power moves and how you have to seize a moment to deal with crises. If there's one thing that Joe Biden should have courage around, it actually is foreign policy. He he courageously challenged Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State on her foreign policy. The Obama strategy around Iraq, he lost that fight, but he at least challenged it. So we need that Joe Biden, the one who has some sort of core, some spine, now more than ever. So the Biden doctrine to me, well, he is inheriting all of these crises in which he will be forced to take positions he was not built to take, that he was possibly part of creating meaning the neoliberal position on many of these issues is no longer the solution. Neoliberal waffling while taking the money. You can't please the donors and the interests that got us here to these crises and then simultaneously solve them. He is going to have to take positions that go against his DNA, except he's just sitting there. He's just dipping his toes in letting difficult situations turn into bigger crises when the red flags have been there all along because of greed, because of how we operate, trying to maximize profit and power instead of just the world. Why does he have to wait so long for so many things to become a crisis? Why can't neoliberals read the room, see which way the wind is blowing? And I hate to speak about this in such flippant ways, but. That's how they're seeing the world. Instead of seeing the lives that are lost, the way that progressives have been challenging them to to, to work from a human-first approach and not a profit-first approach, they've jumped the shark. This is even true about the pandemic and it's definitely true about the nightmare right, right now with Israel against Palestinians. What the hell is Biden doing? not enough in either situation. On the pandemic, Biden could say to America, we have more than enough vaccines, we can share. I mean, really share. Tell the pharmaceutical companies, you have more than enough profit. You can share the wealth by helping others make the vaccine, meaning give them the formula, not leave it to some foundation to make the money off of. On Israel, Biden can tell both Netanyahu that the time for pandering to his radical fringe is over. We are no longer supporting your missiles that just hit innocent children and families who have nowhere to go, nowhere to hide. The entire world is calling out Netanyahu right now and Biden's, eh, maybe you should like have a ceasefire. Meanwhile, here's the money to build, to to send the weapons. Come on. You can tell Netanyahu, the more powerful player in this painfully pas to just stop. This is not about self-defense. This is about refusing to find a solution because peace is is politically riskier for Netanyahu and for the right wing in Israel. This is about annihilating an entire people who are way under-equipped to defend themselves. The one person who has the clout to say enough is enough is Joe Biden, and now is the time cut the funding, distribute the vaccines, end the filibuster, be a leader, because these crises will only get worse if they are not addressed with courage. All right, everybody, we have a great show today. We have Napoleon Legend and Joshua Kahn-Russell, but first, Craig Unger is here. He is the author of American Compromot: How the KGB Cultivated Donald Trump, and Related Tales of Sex, Greed, Power, and Treachery I'm, I mean, I don't like to talk about Trump that much, but I'm very, very excited for this conversation. <laughs> Lots to discuss. All right, we'll be right back after the break. Welcome back to The Nomi Show. I am very excited about this one. Uh, Craig Unger, he's the author of American Compromot How the KGB Cultivated Donald Trump and Related Tales of Sex, Greed, Power, and Treachery. If it didn't have such horrifying impact on our current state of affairs, I would be like, what a great spy novel. But of course, we're dealing with ramifications now. Uh, Craig, thank you so much for joining the show and you're on mute, just so you know. Oh, you're on mute. You know, it's like the pandemic's over, but the muting, the, the muting, muting issues is still- problem.
2: over too, I think, I hope. <laughs>
1: No, we will never go back to offices because uh, Elon Musk is going to be funneling all that money to trips to Mars instead. And we're all going to (laughs) be doing live streams from there. Um, Craig, okay. So tell us about this man, Donald Trump. Who was he?
2: Well, I I, I mean, to me, one of the most important things is he, in the end, I think one critic called it unassailable. I make a case that he really was a Russian asset. And a lot of people have suggested that. John Brennan, a lot of the very top uh, people in national security who came before Trump have asserted it, but no one has ever said, this is what happened and how it happened. And what I try to do is put together the full first detailed narrative of how he became an asset, uh, uh, first to the KGB and now to Russian intelligence.
1: Uh, just so, so so can you give us a little bit of a reminder of the timeline here, um, you know, uh, the KGB uh, <laughs> the KGB was ended after the Cold War, but did all the KGB people just, you know, disappear and, and go to like South America or something on the way that right.
2: this, this goes back more than 40 years to so 1980 at the very uh, uh, latest really, maybe actually it started before then. But the KGB, of course, was the fearsome spy agency for the Soviet Union, and I, you know I think one of the big differences, and I think we're th- sort of rewriting history, is everyone says, "Well, terrific, we won the Cold War, we hooray, hooray for the, uh, the West," and all that sort of stuff. Uh, I have talked to a lot of KGB agents li- lately, and one of my sources, Yuri Schwitz, who told me the, the whole story, and while. The, The United States may have won the Cold War in a way, so did the KGB. And it continued even after the demise of the Soviet Union. That's what I think a lot of people don't understand. When you talk to people in our spy agencies, whether they're in the CIA or FBI counterintelligence, and you go back to that period at the end of the Cold War, a lot of them were scratching their heads saying, well, maybe we're all friends that, what do we do? Are these still our enemies? We, we didn't really know what to do. And we sort of uh, just sloughed off and thought, oh, now they're gonna beco- join our great market economy and we'll all be friends. That is not what happened. And what happened is uh, the KGB got billions and billions of dollars from the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, plowed them into commodity firms that started, um, resurrected themselves as actual companies, but they were really still being run by the KGB. And later they came along and bailed out Donald Trump and have done uh, terrific damage. If you look at the oligarchs, the, the kleptocracy that uh, Putin has created, it all grew out of this. These were, uh, these were the people who all had top, Every single person you can think of as an oligarch, like Oleg Deripaska, yeah. is really uh, a function of Russian intelligence today.
1: So this is so uh, mind-boggling to me. How is it that these it, these were not ideological communists? These were institutional communists. That that I mean, without going down the rabbit hole of what happened post Cold War and how the kleptocracy took over Russia, I, it, it's it's. I think for the American left, it's very it's very hard for them to wrestle with this idea that uh, there that that Putin it comes out of communist Russia, but fully uh, supported the manifestation of the kleptocracy and is is propped up and invested here. Too. I mean, I live in New York City. I, I'm fully aware of how many uh, uh, apartments have been uh, bought up by by people trying to hide their money in places um you know whether it's it's russia or china or anywhere else uh singapore um so how does how does that work how do you go from communist to like extreme capitalist and what is the kgb's role in all of that the former kgb's role in all that
2: well one is I, i think maybe it's helpful to just forget about ideology for a moment and and the you know, the problems between communism, capitalism and Marxism and all that. It's it's about greed, it's about power, it's about money. And uh, one, one of the central things that's important to understand is that the Russian mafia, unlike the Italian American mafia we know so well, which was always at war with FBI, the Russian mafia is really uh, just another branch of the KGB, of, of, of Russian intelligence in a way. And it operates in concert with them and serves their interests. And they're allowed to do whatever they want. And if it's laundering billions and billions of dollars through Donald Trump real estate, um, well, then the the Russian intelligence figures out a way to use that. And uh, I think it became very, very powerful in, in uh, Uh, creating a a very strong relationship with Donald Trump, where in the end he's done everything Vladimir Putin
1: wants. Wow, so much there. Um, When the investigations were happening, I was always very curious why they didn't lean into the money that's being laundered i mean at least uh the congressional investigations the money that's being laundered uh through real estate his real estate holdings and my my instinct was well it's because you know real estate in new york is a democratic you know big democratic donor base and and maybe some of the developers like donald trump or others don't want to go down that rabbit hole is 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 that the sense because it, it seems i don't know how much you can i mean if they're paying in cash i don't know how much you can it can be documented or not but
2: well, a lot can be documented in the sense that um, that is, it, it's hard to prove each and every case is money laundering, but there there are two factors that set off alarm bells. One is if it's a transaction with an, with an anonymous beneficiary where you don't know who is going to be the beneficial owner, uh, who, who is buying the real estate. And two is, is it all cash? If there's no bank involved, then you can essentially... Uh, Put down 10 million dollars here, 10 million there, and just buy up real estate left and right, and you've you've laundered a huge amount of money in uh, very very easily. And it's very hard to prove that the buyer, uh, or rather the the, the seller that, uh, who gets all the money, Donald Trump, in many cases, uh, what was in his mind? Did he know he was getting money from illicit transactions? That's hard to prove. I mean, what you can show is that Trump did this, these kinds of transactions, at least 1,300 times. Woo! And, and I would think that's a pattern. That's just, that, oh, I did it three or four times. No, this is a real pattern. This was a way of doing business. And and it's really why I think there should have been racketeering charges yeah. involved in this Uh
1: was in the investigation. So, um, let's, let's start at the beginning here. Uh, I, I'm a, a scholar of, of Wayne Barrett's who, you know, famously wrote about Trump very early, uh, and a a book about Trump. So Trump's father was in real estate, of course, in Queens. Trump got, uh, his first real estate deal in in midtown at the Commodore, uh, the old Commodore hotel, which is now the, what is the, the Grand Hyatt?
2: The Grand Hyatt, um, Hyatt, yes.
1: Which is, um, you know, a gross building. <laughs> <laughs> aesthetically disgusting, I'll just say that. But this used to be, you know, perceived as a much more uh you know unsafe New York, like very it was very much like late 70s, early right. 80s era. Um did was was that when they got him? Like when was the moment that's they it. got him? That, that is,
2: was it. That's what I started know. it off. Absolutely. I mean <laughs> it, it's still the Grand Hyatt Hotel and uh you may not like it aesthetically but and financially, it was Trump's first re- a genuine success for him. He made a lot of money off of it. And like every hotel, it needed television sets. And where did he get his television sets? But from a store run by Soviet emigres who and that was actually, and I report this for the first time, but it was really a front for the KGB. Uh, and explain
1: that more. Like, how did, how were you able to prove that?
2: Well, uh, one of my sources, a guy named Yuri Schwitz, who was a major in the KGB, and he was uh, with Washington Station, that is the KGB's uh, bureau in Washington, and he was recruiting spies from the Soviet Union back in the 80s, while his colleagues at New York Station were going after Donald Trump. Uh, So, I, I, I talked to, in, in addition, so Yuri was the one who first told me this about the electronic store, but I was able to back it up uh, by talking to uh, a former federal prosecutor. He said he used to camp out there with the FBI watching all the Soviet spies go in to buy their, their electronic goods at this electronic store. So this was a known quantity among, in, within American intelligence. Yeah. Um, this was known to be the place, the New York Times had stories about it and mentioned all the top Soviet officials who went there. Um, and, and it was a way of, uh, uh, and, and the one, the co-owner, Semyon Kislin, was known to be what is called a spotter agent. And that is his role within the KGB was to spot people, the KGB might recruit and determine or not whether it was worth expending resources on it. So when he went to Donald Trump and said, I'll sell you 200 TVs really cheap. He was in effect, opening the door of the KGB. That's how it all started.
1: Wow. And so Donald Trump was just like, I need some TVs. And it's
2: a good deal. I'm sorry, Donald Trump. Was,
1: Donald Trump was just like, I need some TVs. This is a great deal. And PS, in 40 years, we'd like you to run for president. <laughs> and right, and, and they, started playing,
2: they started playing him. Uh, when I talked to Yuri about what are you looking for when you want, look for a spy? And he said, well, Donald Trump was a dream. He was vain, narcissistic. He wasn't very bright. Uh, you could plant ideas in his head, and, and it's very interesting, <laughs> I going back through all the old clips and interviewing people about Trump in the 80s, because he was a wild uh, playboy at the yeah. time. This is a period when he's just starting to meet Jeffrey Epstein. They had parties with uh, uh, the two of them and 28 girls. I mean, what? I think that tells you <laughs> all you need to know about Donald I'm Trump. Not surprised at all. <laughs> right, <laughs> uh, but at the same time he was doing that, Trump began to present himself as the world's leading expert on nuclear arms, which was absurd. It was ridiculous. What? And the course, and you can see these clips, I cite them in my book. Uh, he's talking to the new Washington uh, Post, the New York Times, and so forth, And that's when the KGB invites him and orchestrates his entire trip to Moscow in 1987. And for the first time, uh, he's he's taking all these hints from them and he decides to run for president in 1988. This was the the year that George H.W. Books uh, ends up winning the presidency. But before that, he, but Trump is dipping his toes in the waters. He goes to New Hampshire, uh, where the New Hampshire's primaries are. And then he takes out a full page ad in the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, and the Boston Globe. And it's, it's full of all these foreign policy talking points that were effectively dictated to him by the KGB. And at the same time, Yuri Schwitz, my source, is back at KGB headquarters in Moscow and gets an internal memo celebrating the acquisition of a new asset in the United States who's done his first active measure for the KGB. And they attach this ad that Donald Trump has taken out in the New York Times and the Washington Post.
1: So, okay, so so Yuri Schwitz, why is he willing to talk about these things now? What did he, did, did something happen between him and Putin? I mean, <laughs> Putin was part of the KGB. We bury the lead here. Putin rose up through the KGB.
2: Right. Uh, Yuri was uh, in the KGB through the 90s, but he quit just before the end of the Soviet Union. Um, and uh, when the Soviet Union crumbled, he moved to the United States. Uh, he had been totally disenchanted with the uh, Soviet the Soviet system, and he became an ally and partner of Alexander Litvinenko. Mm. And with Litvinenko, they dug up some of uh, Litvinenko and Yuri dug up some of the most damaging material uh, on Vladimir Putin that's ever been published, uh, including reports on how Litvin- uh, how. Putin was behind the apartment, famous apartment bombings that killed more than 300 Russians and solidified uh, Putin's grasp on power early in his presidency. So, um, uh, th- by the way, that was the book that led to Litvinenko's uh, assassination. And Yuri was uh, testified at the inquest and fingered the assassin and all that. So Yuri has been an active force, a vocal uh, force against Putin for quite some time. Um, and I, I'm surprised that no one else has interviewed him sure. on because he's very, very knowledgeable. And I was able to corroborate a considerable amount of what he told me.
1: Um, let's talk about Epstein real quick, uh, because I was under the assumption that Epstein, if there was any sort of... Um, Spiral It was. It was. There was rumors of him being an Israeli spy. What? Where's the connect? How? has Epstein looped into this?
2: Well, there are a lot of unanswered questions about uh, Jeffrey Epstein, but it, it's clear he he did play a role with Russian intelligence as well. And the way I I saw it, his uh, operation, though it's most frequently talked about in terms of sex trafficking, it was also a compromise factory in many regards because he had hundreds of videotapes of sexual activities. And that may well have been a key part uh, of what he was up to. He, he was also, you know, I mean, everyone knows he was close with uh, Ghislaine Maxwell. Well, her father, Robert Maxwell, the legendary press baron, he was uh, known as the Bouncing Czech. He was from Czechoslovakia originally, <laughs> uh, so that's C-Z-E-C-H. Um, and uh, he was very close to Russian intelligence. He was close to the KGB. He, he would uh, close enough that he could just go to the Kremlin and walk into Gorbachev's office unannounced. Uh, he also had close um, relations with uh, Mossad, especially with Barak. And uh, one of my sources said he saw Jeffrey Epstein with uh, Maxwell at Maxwell's headquarters in the late 80s. Uh, Maxwell died rather mysteriously in 1991. The father, the father. The father did. Uh, but so some of this was going on uh, before uh, Maxwell became, uh, before uh, Epstein became close to uh, Ghislaine Maxwell. And we, we saw, it in, saw it going on in later years um, when once Epstein got into trouble with the law in the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office was investigating, uh, one of the deputy sheriffs there ended up in Moscow. I tracked him down. His name was John Mark Dugan. And I tracked him down by phone in Moscow. And he told me he had 678 videotapes. He showed me one of them uh, of sexual activities that were videotaped in the... Uh, 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 in uh, Jeffrey Epstein's uh
1: Wow. Month. And he was in Moscow. He ended yeah. up-
2: Yes, and 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 in fact, I have a photo of him in Moscow meeting a man named Pavel Barodin, whose name may be unfamiliar to most Americans, but he's an enormously powerful Russian who is one of Putin's mentors. And he's in charge of all, uh, of Russian Federation property, that's nearly a trillion dollars worth of, of property. And there he was meeting with Dugan. And when I when I asked Yuri Schwitz what he thought that meant, well, he said, the, the only thing possible could be going on is he's trying to sell his compromise to to, to the Russian Federation.
1: I oh, know. Yeah. Um, can we talk a little bit about Roger Stone in this? Mm-hmm. Because, uh, <laughs> You know, he famously says that he tried to get, he recruited Donald Trump to run for president and he tried to get him in the 80s, like he likes to take credit for it. But what's what's his role? And it, well, does he well, have a role? Well,
2: it is, um, he's the bad boy of politics. Who's always, he's sort of catnip to reporters. I've interviewed him several yeah. times. And in, in 2012, when Romney was the Republican nominee, uh, I met with Roger during that period and he kept saying, it's going to, he said, in the long run, go with, with Trump. And it, it's clearly he's been with Trump for some time, going back to the 80s. And uh, if you remember, Donald Trump's first lawyer was the unforgettable uh, eternal prince of darkness, Roy Cohn. Yep. And that goes back to the, uh, mm-hmm. to the late 70s. Uh, and and Roy Cohn was friendly with both Paul Manafort and Roger Stone. And so you had the triumvirate there uh, of people who were um, I, molding away the way the Trump playbook, which is never apologize, uh, never backtrack on a lie and attack, 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 no matter what you're doing. And I, I think you can see that. and. and uh, Stone became a, a, a key figure He, he in, in all this. He was an in, intermediary uh, between uh, Julian Assange uh, and, and Trump and uh, right. the distribution of the emails. And, and um, I mean, we've had reporting on that back and forth. So he's quite a character.
1: So, um... Trump is out of office now. The Trump uh, legacy—he's—he's uh, he's haunting the Republican Party. But surely, Putin uh, is thinking, "Well, what's next? Where is the country going? And how am I going to uh, hold, you know, whatever his agenda is? You know, surely." And and let's just be fair, because I know the leftists are going to say it. We do the same thing. I want to get it, like uh, we do the same thing in other countries. This isn't a unilateral situation because right. it's going to happen. Uh, but this is this is modern day geopolitics and you know, you see it popping up. You see comedians getting elected in Europe that have the backing of Putin or Putin's allies. Um, what, what's, is there a sense of what the plan is now?
2: Well, I, I think we're in a very fluid situation because Trump now that he's not president is obviously worth uh, much, much less to Putin. Uh, in addition, you have rumors. I don't know if they're true of, of Putin having medical issues of uh, various internal political issues uh, in, in the Russian Federation now. And of course you have the ascent of Navalny and his being in jail. So there, <clears throat> excuse me, there are a lot of, of, of pieces of, of the puzzle in motion plus the fact that Dr- Donald Trump still has real control over the Republican party. And we saw that with Liz Cheney, being, and it's like a Stalinist purge. Yeah. And the Republican Party, to me, reminds me of the Party of Regions in Ukraine, which is essentially mm-hmm. a party for Putin puppets. It's just a, right. a way for him to manipulate events in another country. And Putin has got that going on still through Trump with the Republican Party. So we're going to see that play out again and again, at least in the in the midterms next year, and perhaps uh, if if Trump is not in jail by then, uh, if Trump decides to run for for reelection in twenty twenty four.
1: You don't think he's thinking? Okay, so there's there's a generational shift. Undeniable uh, generational shift that's happening, and uh, <laughs> there's a lot of people who are angry at the Democratic Party who are under the age of forty that you know support Bernie Sanders or whoever. Um, there's this red brown alliance that could potentially be. Ha- I-, I feel like they're thinking um, we have to. You know, he's thinking forty years down the line, like China's thinking two hundred years down the line. Uh, and we're thinking, can we make it to the midterms? <laughs>
2: well, th- th- there's a lot of that. And and I mean, it's one of the things that's very, uh, I think important about the recruiting of Donald Trump that it started more than 40 years ago. Right. And it's not that it was one ingenious 40 year plan. It was more a series of events and protocols uh, that played it out over and over and, and evolved into something greater far, far greater than anyone had originally conceived. I mean, I I grew up, I'm old enough to remember uh, the first uh, Manchurian Candidate movie, which was sort of the epitome of uh, a paranoid, conspiratorial paranoia. And yet here we have something like that that actually transpired, I never thought would happen in the Middle, million years, and yet it's amazing to me, the American people are not up in arms about it. They don't yeah. they seem to be taking it with a yawn or so. And and I think one of the most uh, upsetting things in all this, to me, one of the most disturbing things is that if we are, uh, to make sure this doesn't happen again, we have to know exactly what happened. There has to be a counterintelligence investigation. And the truth is that really has not happened. Uh, James Comey, when he was head of the FBI, was supposed to do that. He was fired by Trump. When Robert Mueller took over a special counselor, he was supposed to do a counterintelligence uh, investigation, but he didn't do it. Or if he did, it got buried and he just did a criminal investigation. So these are very different kinds of investigation. It's important to understand uh, that counterintelligence investigations are supposed to unca- uncover intelligence
1: threats um, do you think it's because just, there's too many people who could be of power that could be exposed? Too many, um, I mean, it, 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 remember when Mitt Romney was on stage uh, debating uh, Barack Obama and Barack Obama said the 1980s called and wants its foreign policy back? Well, the joke's on us. Mitt Romney was 100% correct about the threat of Russia. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and but I, I mean, I think there's something there. Like we've been in denial and maybe, you know, folks who didn't know that they were, cozying up to the wrong people. We saw the, the Eric Swalwell situation with the Chinese spy. That was where, I mean, how many, how, how often have we been vulnerable and how much has been released? Is that why they don't want to go down that, it's being buried?
2: Well, well, I, I think that's absolutely part of it. And, uh, and I talked to CIA and FBI guys who said, we didn't know what to do after the Soviet Union crumbled. We thought, oh, these are our friends. I talked to businessmen <laughs> who started going, at, uh, doing business with former KGB agents, not, thinking for a moment they could possibly become activated again. And also it's our, think about it this way. This is one of the most grotesque intelligence failures in American history since John Wilkes Booth shot Lincoln. And you think the the FBI doesn't wanna say, oh, this is how we failed. Uh, No one wants to call attention to their own failures. And and I think that's a big big part of it. But I think unless we undertake that kind of rigorous self-examination, we're going to be exposed again in the future.
1: Um, last question: Are you afraid? I mean, I'm afraid interviewing you. <laughs>
2: and, and what's in my? Uh,
1: I mean, it's it's the it's, uh, <laughs> Putin's not a uh, kind on on those who challenge him.
2: Right. Um, I think, um, I, I'm not personally afraid, but I think it's wise and I, you know, I, I, you know, I talked to Yuri Schwitz who was with the KGB and it, his first partner, um, uh, Litvinenko was murdered, okay. assassinated and Yuri testified and fingered the assassin uh, in the UK inquiry, inquest into, into Litvinenko's death. Uh, He also worked for Boris Berezovsky who ended up dead rather uh, mysteriously. I don't want to (laughs) follow that tradition I guess and I know Yuri uh, takes precautions but um, uh, thankfully most of what Russia has done has not taken place on American soil and I have no plans to travel to uh, Moscow in the near future.
1: OK, one more question completely um, is it, it, not connected to that. But I think about it often. A lot of these tech companies have major investment from some of these oligarchs, these Russian oligarchs. And of course, and it's not just Russian oligarchs. there's Chinese. It's, we, we understand that the role of tech is, is a geopolitical game. And we're having these very serious conversations about privacy and platforming. How much of foreign policy, stick to Putin's foreign policy, um, is playing out in ways that we're just not even aware, of. whether it's monitoring our, our text messages or, or how platforms distribute information, how the business model of certain companies is pushing some, some politics over others.
2: Right, well, well, I, I think this is a huge vulnerability and I go into it a, a fair amount in the book and some of it can be traced to Jeffrey Epstein and he had all these salons with the great techie uh, and, and right now we see the divorce of Bill Gates and Bill Gates. And one of the reasons appears to have been that he was going to Epstein's a lot. Uh, you, you have the possibility of compromise being done there. I mean, there was also the story the way uh, I reported in the book how um, Epstein got it, Elon Musk by uh, sort of seducing Elon Musk's brother and providing him with a girlfriend and so forth. So so there's an awful lot of that. In addition, several of the women, the Russian women who worked with Jeffrey Epstein, there's a, a woman named Masha Drakova, who was his, Epstein's publicist for a while. She is a big, big Putin uh, supporter. There's a, a movie out about her called Putin's Kiss, and she was the head of Nashi, which is sort of, the Russian equivalent of uh, the Hitler Youth Movement, but for Putin, Uh, and she became uh, is becoming a big force in Silicon Valley. There's something like 17,000 Russian nationals uh, working in Silicon Valley, who knows how many of allegiance to Russia. You have uh, recently um, uh, the, uh, what is it called? There's the uh, dark side hacking of colonial utilities. There's solar yeah. winds. Right, right. There's a Tampa uh, uh, hacking of the Tampa, Florida water supply, in which the hacker ramped up the amount of lye in the water by a factor of 100, and fortunately, someone was paying attention and saved, uh, was able to stop it before it poisoned everyone, but. You know, we have no idea, are they in the electric, uh, did they penetrate the electric grids uh, in Texas when you have that ice storm? There are thousands of vulnerabilities. And we all we know is that we've not uncovered them yet. And when the Russians can push a button and paralyze us it is, uh, is really quite threatening.
1: It's almost like we should fund our infrastructure so that we have a stronger infrastructure, uh, so that we're not vulnerable. It's almost like uh, there might be foreign interest in in, in uh, keeping us, you know, tethered to austerity politics, uh, the way that many of the Republicans are are uh, looking to hold up. <laughs> many yeah, thoughts. Absolutely, <laughs> Craig Unger, Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you can check out Craig's book. It's Penguin Press, I believe. Uh, it is called. American Compromise: How the KGB Cultivated Donald Trump and Related Tales of Sex, Greed, Power, and Treachery. And for those of you who, you know, are curious about this, this, like you said, this has been a lot of this stuff was reported on in different ways in the in the early '80s and late '70s. And it's just piecing it all together and looking back at it in retrospect. And obviously, there's new stuff that you've reported on as well. um, You know, how. How did how did we get there and why is nothing happening that's what's concerning me we gotta yeah never again yes Hopefully. all right thanks craig
2: thanks for having me i appreciate it
1: always a pleasure all right we'll be right back with joshua khan russell and napoleon the legend to talk about today's news legend here he is an afrobeat hip-hop artist he you've been you sold out your last i'm looking at your instagram and it's like sold out sold out so have you re-upped it like what's what's the deal
0: no not right now we we're just pressing um with like records which is a french record label. We, we press a limited edition vinyl and every time we're putting it out they, they're selling out fast we'll, we'll see later on if like we're gonna repress it love it you gotta get that vinyl in the u.s man I know, I know. It, it's coming. It's coming.
3: It's Sucha Khan
1: Russell, executive director of the Wildfire Project, straight out of Oakland. What's up?
3: Hey, I've I've been listening to Napoleon's new album a lot. It's it's in the it's called The Hole in My Heart Part 3. It's the hole of my headphones right now.
1: The <laughs> my my headphones broke yesterday. I'm it's I, I didn't work out today because I was like, I can't I can't do this. I got to listen. <laughs> we become so remember when we used to do it with Walkman? And then like the CD players, they'd always skip. Like if you were going for a run, how did we, what? How you
3: have got, gotten soft, gotten Kids, spoiled.
1: You don't understand in the old days. The they'd struggle. have to listen to vinyl as they were on their elliptical. <laughs> no, I, I miss making,
3: making mixtapes, like actual mixtapes. They were
1: the best. My dad in his office, that it's a new office. He moved my old boombox. I'm like, you still? What? What are you doing with it's the tape boombox? Like the eight CD player was such a big deal when I got it. Oh my god, I like begged for that thing. And he's like, oh, I just listen to radio on still.
3: That's how, um, you know, we would because I grew up in the punk scene, and and we would we would make mixtapes for people we had crushes on. That's how that's how we like instead of the like, do you like me? Check yes or no kind of thing in middle school. We made we made mix tapes. Yeah, I, I, I used to
0: it. do that. I used to be the guy like that, that was slinging tapes at school. Mm-hmm. And all the girls would ask me to make a tape for them.
1: We should find them and, and play them and see how, I know I have the old ones that we girls would do it for friends and are like moms. Like I had a mom's date mixtape, but then I got them from guys and I was like, oh. it would be like Bone thugs and harmony <laughs> <Like. laughs> Okay, guys, we're going to shift gears real quick. Game very serious now because we do have serious things to discuss. All right. Um, so tom cotton uh genius senator i'm gonna guess he's one of the senators who came out and said that he doesn't wear masks and he has not gotten vaccinated and has no interest in getting vaccinated because two republican senators did say that but it's anonymous uh he this you know i think we're all aware that uh the headquarters for the ap and uh, al jazeera were bombed uh by uh israeli forces by netanyahu and gave him an hour an hour and an hour wait, how generous to reporters. Uh, Great, great, great move, Israel, champion of democracy. Um, So Tom Cotton says, the AP, the Associated Press, colluded with Hamas. Now, we're going to play this clip, but I just want to set the frame here for a second, because I'm very curious if this is, it's like, oh, I can make 15 arguments at once, like, oh, the Associated Press, the liberals who who, uh, you know, they're up to no good and you should never trust the the liberal press. And then like doing the bidding for Netanyahu. So let's let's play the clip. Why is the Associated Press sharing a building with Hamas? Surely these intrepid reporters knew who their neighbors were. Are you kidding me? Did they knowingly allow themselves to be used as human shields by a US designated terrorist organization? Did the AP pull its punches and decline to report for years on Hamas's misdeeds? I submit that the AP has some uncomfortable questions to answer.
3: Boom, Joshua. I mean, he doesn't even bother anymore trying to pretend that this was a legitimate military target, right? It's just moving straight to demonizing the media, saying, well, they deserved it. Right. And that is not only perfectly in line with how that strain of authoritarianism in the Republican Party views the media um, and the media is focusing on that because they it's them. But the logic extends to hospitals and schools and other infrastructure. And I cringe every time, you know, like whenever I hear the trope of human shields, it's so like, despite all of the sophisticated targeting weaponry that it, you know Israel is indiscriminately entering into, collect- into collective punishment and to use the excuse of saying that there's human shields which they use every time it's like saying well you made me kill children you made me it's the it's exactly the logic of the abuser it's a convenient they can just claim that in any circumstance for any reason with no proof or evidence whatsoever and also the spectre of hamas i was actually listening to mr today and was was glad that this was pointed right. out um, yeah, the majority report they are pointing out that, you know, Hamas is a coordinating governing body. Um, and so you can call almost anything Hamas, right? It doesn't necessarily correlate to a military target, right? The Israel claimed Hamas is everywhere. Human shields are everywhere. And so therefore there ne- never needs to be accountability for killing civilians, killing children. Um, it, it's, it's just- well, a- I mean, When you have a zone that small, you can't help but have human, sh- it's not human shields.
1: It's called your- there's such a small sliver of land, and there's nowhere for people to go. That it is, even if they want to go down that, that path of that stupid argument, you know, not everybody has like a zillion dollar dome that is paid for by US government uh, to protect them. But, you know, we'll just work it up. Napoleon.
0: I mean, Hamas is, is like a convenient label you could put on anything. And to to help them justify any type of attack, any type of deed they do, they'll just say, "Oh, they had to do something with Hamas." And also, it's funny because Al Jazeera, I think, I believe was in this building because I have a friend who works for Al Jazeera, and I, you know, I, I texted them make sure every they were okay. So it, it it's not just AP Press; it's, it's 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 companies like Al Jazeera, and just to insinuate that somehow they, they, they work for the AP press or Al Jazeera or media, like they signed up to be with Hamas or something like that. It's
1: I, totally I doesn't make me type of I sense. someone I know that works for the Associated Press as I'm sitting here. I was like, I didn't know you worked for Hamas when you worked at the Associated Press. Good
0: right, like <laughs> do how, do you, how do you even insinuate that? It's, it's it's such a ridiculous stance and a ridiculous God. idea. And I saw a video on, on your uh, Instagram story where you see that mostly the people were scrambling with, they had cameras and, and journalists uh, equipment that, that that they use it and it's obvious that the Israel doesn't want journalists to cover what's going on over there they don't want any images any type of footage any type of reporting coming out of Gaza
1: I don't know if that's their, their I can't think that, that Netanyahu is that stupid but what he, this is all revealing to me in terms of power is he's that desperate and that he is going so aggro because he's so afraid of 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 being taken down that he's willing to 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 pose the most extraordinary attacks on, on Palestinian people in the, at least the last decade, and to, to the point where he's willing to maybe it was a quick I don't know if they knew that the press was I can't think he was that stupid that he would bomb the Associated Press headquarters I can't think that but his the intelligence is obviously the most sophisticated intelligence some of the most sophisticated I mean, intelligence they, they in the had world. to know
0: how, how could they not know because they
3: they they there's like six
1: them. buildings there. I mean, seriously, that's how small the land is. Like, guys, well, are we kidding? They're trying to
3: control the images coming out. They're trying to control the reporting.
1: You really think that they'd be willing to, to attack the Associated Press and have... He thinks he's 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 that he's that confident in his support, which is true, by the way, that he didn't think that that was too far to attack the I mean, Associated Press? I don't think he press. thinks anything
3: is too far. I, don't mm-hmm. think he, I mean... What 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 gets defined too far to an authoritarian, right? I don't know. It, I, only I mean, the limits that get put on you from some from some counterweight, which of which right now there's nothing. And I mean, so that, that's
0: sorry. doesn't it remind you of trial by combat with that Giuliani was saying and that, like it's the things Trump was doing when he knew he was gonna come out of power, like desperate times is he's it's desperation. So he 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 has no limits. It, I I don't I don't put anything on him like and any type of restraint.
1: And this is a man who has, was, you know, Netanyahu, like many authoritarians, went to school in the West, speaks, you know, beautiful English, um, understands the nuances of of U.S. politics. And this is where... I just like the international community is up in arms over this. People who have usually stayed silent are up in arms over this, these attacks. The press, the international, that's something that, that Biden is gonna have to respond to. So let's just real quickly uh, show Biden's response because Biden did talk to Netanyahu uh, and um, he was just like, okay, well, could you just like maybe think about a ceasefire? Meanwhile, here's a bunch of money for some missiles to bomb Palestinian schools. Biden, like he's he's this is my opening today, was he's waffling because he it's not a good look for him to not criticize Netanyahu for attacking the Associated Press. It's not a good look for the international community to see that Biden, who is funding these efforts with a with a pen and Congress is funding these efforts, is not condemning it in a forceful way. I mean, this is the same Nanyalu who buddied up with Jared F. And Kushner. Are we kidding? What is going on?
3: If you scroll down, the the second tweet in that tweet thread is oh, is yeah. the them them being like, oh, by the way, we also talked to Palestinian authorities. Like it just like it's it's a rhetorical afterthought. Yeah. Right? It's, yeah. it, it completely embodies that. The thing about what you're saying, with the narrative changing too, like the the fact that the the discourse is is fundamentally different than it's been in in decades, is I think it's important to talk about it for a second because the you know the rejection of the both sides ism, at least among U.S. progressives, um, is is new, right? Up until now, the liberal byline of like I'm progressive on everything except the things that affect me personally, <laughs> yeah. has absolutely been true for American Jews and the understanding of social problems, not as fundamentally about ideology or beliefs, which is what the both sides kind of trope rests on, um, but instead is about like a foundationally simple power dynamic is really mm-hmm. important. And um, in this society, we're taught that problems and conflict arise from the ideas in people's heads, right? Rather than a material power relationship. And so all the fact that so many people are pointing out that one side is a nuclear armed state attacking a starved and repressed population that has handmade rockets and acts with impunity. Um,
1: oh, but Iran th- funds them,
3: <laughs> right? There's um, the the pointing out of that. You know, like like regardless of what how if they do try to paint you know Palestinians as materially powerful. Um, The reason why that's important, and just as a quick aside, understanding things in terms of power in the popular consciousness in in this country is is largely, I think, an outcome of the work of the movement for Black Lives uh, from the last couple of years. And it matters not just for understanding um, why the world is how it is, but also for understanding how to make change and intervene on a power dynamic, intervene um, Mm -hmm. strategically. Uh, And so that's what's most encouraging for me is that now social movements are saying, okay, the narrative is beginning to change. How do we translate that into action?
1: What do you think, Napoleon?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I, I agree with what he's saying. And um, I think it's important for people to, like, we understand it, but for for everybody to understand that the US complicity in this whole thing. And I don't think the average person might understand. They think it's something that's going on in Israel. And when you see the way that the White House is tweeting and, and the fact that they're in full support and if you like in the, every other nation, like in the UN and everything else is saying it's a war crime, they should stop and everything else. The only thing that's allowing and enabling Israel to do, to, to the government Israel to act the way it acts is because it has U.S. unconditional backing and mm-hmm. and, and and support with the weapons, with everything else. Imagine if tomorrow Biden had some, some sort of cojones and was like, hey, like, you got to stop doing that. We're going to stop funding you guys. It would make it so much, like, harder for Israel to carry out these type of things. And um, I, I think we, we we have to go hard. It, you know, the way the way we're going, and it's good to see, like, the squad and people in Congress speaking out against it. And like I said, I think that is a, a big change from what we've seen uh, in, in the years past. And we have to continue it because it, as long as the U.S. is going to hold the same type of uh, policy vis-a-vis, Uh, Israel, the the, the massacre is going to continue.
1: Not to mention that in the press hearing, you had the press challenging the State Department, explicitly challenging the State Department. You have mainstream media allowing people like John Oliver to make a case and say you guys are out of your effing minds. The sea change is beyond just having a few members of Congress, thank God, We have Rashida Tlaib, Palestinian elected, first Palestinian elected into Congress. Thank God we have Ilhan Omar. Thank God we have the squad. Thank God we have the progressives who did not speak out in the past, who now have backup and are willing, like Mark Pocan. Like, there are many elected officials now who are saying, basta, it's enough, right? This is, you can't, you can't continue on. And reporters who are like an attack on, it's too far for them because they've been attacked. So yeah. I feel like there might be an opening here to really go full, hard against, I mean, he's already kind of waffling at this moment. And, and, and it doesn't you know, help that Trump was totally in line with the right-wing insanity of Netanyahu. But simultaneously, we as progressives should start calling out our supposed progressive caucus members who went on APAC conferences.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You can't do both. I don't know. Well, I mean, do you think and that's a lot,
3: Joshua? Well, let, let's add to the to the list that y'all are making some of the grassroots actions that are starting to happen all around the country. This last weekend, yeah. uh, all around the world on Saturday, there were demonstrations in pretty much every major city. Um, and you know, where I live in the Bay Area, ten thousand people came out. That that that's unheard of for for this kind of uh, moment, right? And last week, when I was on the show, I mentioned that there was a call uh, for young Jews to join a strategy call for if not now. Over a thousand people joined a strategy conference call exactly. who were brand new, right? Exactly. This is a doorway for folks who are coming in. They did another set of actions 36 hours later um, that, that they're now getting organized to do Shabbat actions this Friday, pressuring Biden around giving money to Israel, especially in the wake of the 78 million that was just given, right? And so when we when we talk about protest actions or nonviolent direct action, there is um, you know there, there's kind of two basic kinds. We we talk about There's the demonstration kinds, which are communicative, right? Trying to change a conversation. And then there's concrete actions that go for the material impact. And that's what the logic of the boycott, divest, and sanctions uh, movement is, right? And so, what we've seen already this week, all around the world, there are trade unions that are blocking the deployment of of weapons to Israel from ports. on the 17th, the Palestine General Federal uh, Federation of Trade Unions in the Gaza Strip issued a call to U.S. labor unions asking them to boycott the Israeli occupation. And where I live in the Bay, there's been a campaign called Block the Boat, uh, which is launched by a, a grassroots organization, the Arab Resource Organizing Center, working with labor, the ILWU Local 10, that... Um, in the in the major attacks on Gaza in 2014, they blockaded ships coming to right. port, particularly one called Zim, which was successful, impacting uh, on, on a scale of, of multiple millions of dollars. And now that ship is scheduled to come back, so people are now um, gearing up to blockade the port again. And so th- these are examples of yep. material impact where, for so long, this issue, people have just thrown up their hands and said, "Well." That's really unfortunate, but that that's happening over that. Like people don't see themselves in it, you know. And that's what we're paying for. <laughs> yeah, and, and so so that there's actual avenues to take action.
1: Um, can I just before we wrap, I want to play this this video of uh, just to show kind of the. And I've received some. I'm sure we all have um, received some messages from people that I that are good Democrats. Uh, you know, supportive of the movement for black lives, uh, showed up in solidarity with George Floyd. And yet the messages have been quite alarming about uh, my and many others, by the way, reaction to these events in terms of their support of Israel and um, the brainwashing. I mean, there's no other way of saying it. I think there's, you know, I grew up in an environment hearing the Jewish narrative, the the the, the APAC Zionist narrative, not the Jewish narrative, I think it be very clear. Um, it took effort. Not that I ever sided with it, but it took effort for me personally to investigate and understand what was happening with Palestinians. And I think there's that moment where you have to, you know, let's just let's just play the clip and you'll get a sense. I think Israelis have to take over, and uh, they have to kick them
2: uh, kick them away. It will be much better. Not, not to kill them, just to, to go back to, to Arab countries.
3: But it's really rightfully ours, if you look at the history and at, like the wars, and we didn't even start a lot of the wars, and it, we, we conquered these places rightfully, like it's ours.
0: 1,400 years later, we come back. Now, I'm not saying that we can blame the people living here for what happened, but you've got to accept that that's some kind of divine justice, that their great-great-great-great-grandfathers kicked my great-great-great-grandfather out of here, and then we come back, and all of a sudden they're like, well, no, we don't want it, it's not fair. I think that the Jews came here, they took, a, they took this land, and this is our land now, and I don't think there should be here, no Arabs. <laughs> Like hey, Arabs, they want. We gave them Gaza. She said they should go live there quietly if they want. They should go back to Iraq. I don't know to wherever they want. I think that we need to.
2: I don't think there's any answer to it. Really? There's only one way. To, like, I would carpet bomb them. Oh, you would carpet bomb them. That, it's the only. It's the only way you could deal with it. Like, or or try to stop them a different way. It, it never worked.
0: I think that uh, we're miserable. The, the say uh, make a big and uh, we need to kill the Arabs.
2: <laughs> no. I think another thing uh, that the Jews should have rights to hate them. I think we have the right to hate them. I don't, I don't see a reason why not. Okay. I, I would not trust any of them.
1: So clearly, I mean, this is a woman on the street kind of thing, and. When you do, women, you, there, there are plenty of people I'm sure that don't necessarily um, agree with these, uh, this what, what they're saying. But there's definitely a, a brainwashing that's happening. Um, I'll start with Napoleon. What do you think?
0: Well, well, we know that the Jewish community is not a monolith, and and it's certainly not everybody's perception. And and a lot of them are diametrically opposed to what we just heard. It's what's alarming is that. The, the actions we're seeing from the, the the Israeli government is in line with folks who believe this, which I'm pretty I'm 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 almost positive that they're the 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 small minority. And I I I just don't know how 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 that happens. And it's funny because let's take their line of reasoning. I wish they were going this hard for the Native uh, Americans <laughs> when they're talking about land being stolen yes. years back and this and that. We are in modern times. You cannot bring a holy book as a discussion and, and say this is a, a real estate contract. It, it doesn't work like that. You know what I'm saying? It's just it, it, nobody's gonna buy that. And it's just the fact that that that's the policy that's being uh, enabled over there, backed by us in the United States and funded by us. is is It's it's totally ridiculous. I don't. I, I you know. I don't know how long this could last.
1: What was interesting is is you had everything from carpet bomb them, to murder everybody, kill them all, kill them all, to just displace them. But up time to go to Iraq or something.
0: <laughs> I mean, it shows it people, all can, on the can, same Can spectrum. people leave Gaza if they wanted to?
1: Great question. Oh, isn't that an interesting question? And what route would they take, buddy? Because I, I know they can't
0: take, I heard they can't take the sea, and the, the, the other side is gated. Where, where are they going to go? Like, even if that was like the option, like, like like you're an African, you go get out, get, go back to Africa type thing. Like it's a, it's an easy thing. It's the same, it's the same yeah. s- statement.
3: That's right. When that woman laughed as she yeah. said the Arabs, it was just
0: scary. scary.
3: Yeah. I, I mean, I remember the first time I was around this flavor, this like particular type of Zionism. Like I, I grew up as one of the only Jews in my town. And then I went to a historically Jewish university where there was like the full spectrum of, of political opinion on display. And I, I had such disgust and shock. I hadn't encountered that before, and I had like an identity crisis. I was like, "Y'all are not my people. What is this?" And then, then I learned instead to see this through the lens of trauma, and and it clicked for me. Which is, you know, people often repeat. A cliche of like a cycle of violence and in in a pretty simplistic way, but it's more important to understand the relationship here uh, between political ideology and generational trauma. Not as a justification for people's behavior at all as a way to understand that ethnic nationalism often postures as liberation, but it's a road to tyranny right so Israel is a nation state. founded by Holocaust survivors on the logic of colonization of colonization, of course this is the outcome, right? Mm. So when, when Jews were historically repressed and oppressed around the world and adopted a mindset of that victimhood, then when you're given that level of state power and military supremacy and maintain that mindset of victimhood, you reproduce the trauma that created it, right? And it's that's why authoritarian leaders need to build a sense of agreement, agreement and victimhood no matter where they operate. Mm. And it can take a deeper root if the population that they are demagoguing are people who are are um, in a cycle of generational trauma, that's how that's how that works, and you know, and and, and it happens on a global level. Like my friend, I have a, a Palestinian Israeli friend, Wallace Bates, who um, was just arrested in Haifa and was was talking about it, and he pointed out how. Uh, Europe, uh, especially Germany's support for Israel right now, is the result of their shame of the Holocaust, meaning that Palestinian people right now are paying the price for Europe's (laughs) anti-Semitism. And so that... The, the interrelationship between those things is what gives birth. And, and that's that's why I think you know the, the antidote to ethnic mm-hmm. nationalisms as a road to try to convince people um that they're gonna be safe. The antidote to that is is genuine, you know, solidarity. And mm-hmm. um it's just so upsetting to see. Well, I feel I feel like it's greed also
0: at the top and and the imperialistic uh tendencies yeah. that's instrumentalizing that that sentiment, yes. that, that, yes. that pain and that trauma. Yep. It's like, we, we could zero just like Trump was doing with, 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 people that were left behind with from the American dream. and was like, look, it's yep. these people that is their fault. I think it, it feels like it's the same game that's being played at the top.
3: Yep. Yeah. Can, can I just put, put a point on what you're saying? Cause that's, so, that's what we were talking about earlier with the material power relationship is that all of the ideological stuff I mentioned, that's not what's driving it. That's what's being exploited by yep. Um, the drive to acquire land and resources and to, to dispossess people in the process of doing it. And so it's, it, it, I'm not saying that generational trauma is this root and source of this. I'm saying that is the fertile ground upon which demagogues can play in order to maintain material power and control of, of, of land and resources.
1: Could not agree more. Um, very profound. Thank you guys. Thank you for this hearty conversation. Uh, very, I'm sure we'll have more of this in the next couple, it's not going away anytime soon, um, unfortunately, unless Biden <laughs> decides to say, give me my money back, our money back, I should say. Uh, Joshua Kahn-Russell, what are you working on? What can people see here?
3: Well, the Wildfire Project, which is uh, our organization that helps train um, progressive organizations is we're actually just about to launch um, a new strategy process. And so we'll be sharing that out soon. And if you're curious, you can go to our website and join our listserv. And uh, we're really excited to be sharing that. But check out um, wildfireproject.org. It's up there. Yeah.
1: Napoleon, can't get my <laughs> vinyl. <laughs>
0: <laughs> They're sold out, but... I, I'll try to work Can I that save out.
1: one next time. Can we just like put one on hold for me? <laughs> okay.
0: Yeah, I'll put one on the, side, on the wait bro. list. <laughs> um, I have uh, actually the hole in my heart. The, the lat part three coming out and uh, on, uh, on May twenty eighth. And uh, this Friday, I, I, I have a video that I'm featured on with uh, a French rapper on, but it's uh, it's in French. But I'm it's very cool. proud because he's one of my rap heroes. So be on the lookout for that this Friday.
1: So cool! We shot I love
0: it. it. We shot it on Napoleon Beach in
3: uh the south of France oh it just damn wasn't it, oh, like, it wasn't even yeah. by accident yeah it's I crazy. hope you
1: did a photo shoot there too
3: oh we did <laughs> Napoleon <laughs> one of the many things I'm grateful to you for is introducing me to French rap I'd never heard French rap before like just never heard rhyming in the French language like that before and um you got me hooked
0: no nah, it's beautiful It's there's there's some gems in French rap I mean that
1: I love it um, when I lived in France in 2003, I once uh, stumbled upon a French rap uh, video being shot. And that's where I was introduced to French rap was being a 19 year old going to nightclubs. Sorry, mom and dad. That's what I did with my summer exchange was I went to nightclubs and listen to French rap like Buddha bar. I don't know if you guys remember any of this stuff if you've been there, but that was hot in 2003.
0: That's what's up. <laughs> where in France were you? Paris. Oh, okay. Beautiful. Beautiful. yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. So, anyways, uh, I studied French. I did not study Spanish. If you watched my live last night, you would know that. That we had a whole conversation about how my Spanish is is almost th- it's almost there, but like because I didn't get the fundamentals. Um, and I did it with French. You know, there you go. Thanks, guys. Love you. See you next week, next Tuesday. It was good to see you
0: both. À bientôt À
1: all right, we've got some uh, shout outs here. New rocket shirts, I celebrate the anniversary of the various punk and hardcore mixed, oh, they should have seen that, mixed tape um, an old boyfriend gave me on, oh, ready for this? November 25th, 1982, but every year. Oh, that must have been a long-term boyfriend. Uh, Kyler Rosado saw it on Instagram last night, but this hair, thank you, it's blonder. I don't know how much of it you can see. It was curlier yesterday because they did it for me and. I don't have a curling iron and or the patience to do that. So yes, it's a little blonder. Uh, Carrie Venus, thank you for the love. And OG, Greek goddess, really cool. Know me, shout out, Wayne Barrett, RIP. Yes, Wayne Barrett died the night before Donald Trump was inaugurated, one of my uh, great heroes. Um, yeah, so thank you to everybody. Thank you for our moderators who have been ruthlessly in those chats just killing those trolls, kill the trolls and boosting the, uh, the uh, excuse me, boosting the algorithms. Everybody who's in there, these algorithms are killing us, uh, killing everybody, I should say. So thank you to everyone. Make sure to share and like, and if you haven't checked out the committee show, the committee program is up right now. Go check it out on uh, at three. It, it goes every Monday at 3 p.m. to 6 p.m., but you can watch it And I think you can watch some clips as well. So go check that out. All right, guys, we will see you tomorrow at 3 p.m., same time, 3 3 p.m. Eastern, same time, same place here on YouTube and on Twitch. Stay in solidarity.